Good evening, everyone. Glad you could join us for Catholic Education Classes. Before we begin, let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Come Holy Spirit, open our hearts, open our minds to accept your truth on this crucial topic of sexuality. Help us to really know the truth and live it out each day. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it, as it was, was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Tonight, we're reading from John Kipley's book, Sex and the Marriage Covenant. It is a fantastic book. I urge everyone to get your own copy and to study it. It's the best book that I've ever read on Catholic sexuality. And tonight, we are on maybe the most controversial topic in this book and in the Catholic Church in the last century. Marital contraception. This takes courage. It takes courage to really open up your heart to accept God's truth on this topic. God's truth hasn't changed from one end of the Bible to the other end, from Genesis to Revelation, contraception is forbidden and condemned. And for 2,000 years, the Catholic Church, from the, from the Didache in the first century to Humanae Vitae in 1968, it has been a consistent teaching against contraception. But the invention of the birth control pill in the early 1960s changed everything. And it really was a cultural revolution. And the teaching of the church has been um, overwhelmed by this new technology of the birth control pill. And now surgical sterilization. So there's been a cultural shift. The church has not changed its teaching. And the church's teaching is just as valid as it always was. And even more important today than ever because of this cultural shift. But face it, the vast majority of people in America and the vast majority of Catholics in America practice marital contraception. So when you take on this topic, as which we will tonight, we're going to do a lot of explanation on this topic tonight. You're fighting just about everybody. You, the only people on your side are really uh, devoted, courageous, well-educated Catholics. And about everybody else is against you. So uh, put on your seatbelts, buckle up, 
This is going to be a wild ride. <laughs> We're on page 52. At the bottom of the page, uh, section 2, marital contraception. And once again, I restate for anyone who might be just tuning in, um, the premise of this book is that all sexuality should be a renewal of the marriage covenant. Any sexual act to be moral must be a renewal, at least implicitly, of the marriage act, of, of the marriage act, of the marriage covenant. Excuse me, of the marriage covenant. So, page 52, uh, at the bottom of the page, marital contraception. In applying the covenant theology of sexuality to the issue of birth control within marriage, I will follow this sequence or series of questions. 1. What makes a couple married? 2. What is the role of sex within marriage? 3. How is contraceptive behavior to be evaluated in terms of the marriage covenant? 4. How is systematic natural family planning to be evaluated in terms of the marriage covenant? 5. How does the covenant theology of sexuality correspond with the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church? Lastly, I will address two questions that keep cropping up among those who accept the Christian teaching against unnatural forms of birth control. 6. Is systematic natural family planning morally permissible, or should couples just let the babies come as they may? 7. Do couples have a contraceptive mentality if they use natural, family, natural methods to limit their family in a selfish way? By the way, it is proper to reaffirm that the criterion for evaluating sexual activity is not just physical. It is not just spiritual or intentional. It is sacramental, which means that the criterion is truly human. It entails that wonderful, inseparable union of sign and reality, matter and spirit, interpersonal relations with each other and with the Creator, human self-determination and fulfillment of that order created by God. The criterion for evaluating sexual activity is the marriage covenant itself. Sexual activity that renews the marriage covenant is morally good. Sexual activity that goes against or does not renew, at least implicitly, the marriage covenant is morally evil. Number one, what makes a couple married? A man and woman marry when they publicly promise to love each other without reservation as long as they both live. The term love here has nothing to do with great emotional feelings. It means caring love and fidelity even under the most trying circumstances, for better and for worse. In essence, the man and the woman make a total unreserved gift of self to each other for life. And that's what makes them husband and wife. 
to put it in biblical terms, they willingly enter God's covenant of marriage by making a permanent gift of self to each other. Yeah, and, that, and that's something that is so needed to be said. That's what marriage is. And that has really been lost in today's world. And when you think about it, what a beautiful thing that is. A total gift of self to another person for life. That's awesome. That is just awesome. I mean, Ann and I have been married almost 40 years, and, and you've been married almost two years. Yeah. And it's just, it's just an awesome thing. Well, and I would say, you know, like a lot of people, you know, they, they really only know the emotional love. Right. You know, and I think there are probably a good number of people out there who have dated somebody and one week, they're emotionally in love with you, and then the next week, they're not. And they're like, well, I just don't feel it anymore. Yeah. And then they break up with you. You know yeah. what I mean? Like right. that, that, and that's obviously not something you want to base a lifelong right. relationship right. in some way off of. That, that's not the basis of marriage. Yeah. The basis of marriage is a commitment of your life, of your will, a total gift of yourself for life. And also, if you take that mentality just into the dating world, you date differently. So true. So true. But that is something for another day. Yeah. <laughs> We're not talking about baby. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> the marriage of two Christians in the sacrament of matrimony because, excuse me, the marriage of two Christians is the sacrament of matrimony. Because through baptism, Christians are marked as belonging in a special way to Christ. Thus, in Christian marriage, there is the union of one Christ-bearer to another Christ-bearer. The words they utter are a sacrament. For though they are physical words, they create a spiritual bond in Christ a new relationship between this man and this woman. As sacramental, their promises signify what God is accomplishing in uniting this couple. The covenant relationship is not just of the spouse's own making. It has a God-given structure. It is a relationship co-created both by God and by the husband and wife. The man and woman must freely enter this relationship. They must make the God-intended relationship their own, or there is no real covenant, but just a meaningless and hypocritical ceremony. By the same token, they do not make their own unique covenant without reference to the structure intended by God. If, for example, they agreed in all sincerity that if they were to lose mutual love and affection for each other sometime in the future, they would feel free to find other mates. There simply would be no covenant of marriage. 
it might be a commonly accepted social custom. It might be more accurately called a state of respectable mistressing or fornication. It simply is not marriage. God does not marry two people unless they want it. The two people cannot marry unless they are willing to enter into the relationship that God has intended. And, and that's one of the things that's so distressing about right now in our culture where the Supreme Court has said that two men and two women can marry. Or they may say very soon three men or four men or whatever. God, who created the heavens and the earth, who created Adam and Eve, has created marriage. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the human race. And there is a certain relationship between one man and one woman that is marriage. And that's the only thing that is marriage. It gets very confusing now in society where same-sex marriage is called marriage. It's not marriage. It is not the marriage covenant. And even a man and a woman who enter into what the author just said, some arrangement of convenience, that's not marriage either. There's only one thing that is marriage. And that's what God has intended. And so if you're actually going to get married, you have to enter into the covenant that God has designed and God has decreed. You have to willingly enter into that relationship. Anything else is not marriage. We're on page 54. The marriage covenant. What does this covenant entail? The contraception controversy thus far has highlighted two aspects of the marriage covenant. The willingness to help each other grow in love and the willingness to let love produce life. That in turn calls for more love from the married couple. I would like to draw attention again to the specific conditions under which the couple marry. They promise each other that they marry each other with all that is entailed in the marriage covenant without reservation, specifically for richer and for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better and for worse, as long as they are both still living. Needless to say, both persons are probably hoping that everything works out for better, healthier, and richer. Nevertheless, it is their willingness to give of themselves to each other without serious reservation that makes the marriage. It is their willingness to accept each other to remain faithful to each other, to be loving to the other under difficult and even disastrous circumstances, and to do this until they are separated by death that makes their union a marriage. It is these qualities 
that make their union an authentic, permanent love union, and not just a socially and economically acceptable liaison or long-term affair. Wow, that's a beautiful, beautiful paragraph. I don't have much else to say. That, that says it. The purpose and purposes of marriage. The overriding purpose of marriage is the mutual holiness of husband and wife. Absolutely. One of the main reasons you get married is to help each other get to heaven. And, and that should always be foremost in your mind. Pope Pius XI was explicit on this in his 1930 encyclical, Casti Canubi. Quote, the love, then, of which we are speaking is not that based on the passing lust of the moment, nor does it consist in pleasing words only, but in the deep attachment of the heart, which is expressed in action, since love is proved by deeds. This outward expression of love in the home demands not only mutual help, but must go further must have as its primary purpose that man and wife help each other day by day in forming and perfecting themselves in the interior life so that through their partnership in life they may advance ever more and more in virtue. End quote. You know, that reminds me so much of Ann and I when we got married. We were very serious about our religion, very serious about attaining heaven. And we said to each other, either before we got married or when we got married, that we would always, let me put it this way, when two people get together, they have sometimes different standards. The bar is here, or the bar is here. And we said consciously, explicitly to each other, we will never stoop to the other one's level. We will always try to lift the other one to the higher level. So if, if my level is of spirituality is daily prayer, I'm going to try to lift my partner to daily prayer. Weekly Mass is good, but daily prayer and weekly Mass is better. And so if I am in the habit of daily prayer, I'm going to try to lift you up to daily prayer too. I'm not going to reduce myself to the lowest common denominator just to keep peace. No, I'm going to challenge you to lift up and we said that to each other explicitly that we would always call each other to the higher standard and we have and it's it has helped both of us grow immensely in in our spirituality back to page 55 under the title, The Purpose and Purposes of Marriage. In effect, the covenant to help each other on the path that leads to salvation, 
The strength of this teaching of Pope Pius XI is not always remembered, so it may be of value to quote in full the next paragraph of this landmark encyclical. Quote, this mutual inward molding of husband and wife, this determined effort to perfect each other, can in a very real sense, as the Roman Catechism teaches, be said to be the chief reason and purpose of matrimony, provided matrimony be looked at not in the restricted sense as instituted for the proper conception and education of the child, but more widely as the blending of life as a whole and the mutual interchange and sharing thereof." Unquote. The Second Vatican Council continued and amplified this teaching. In The Church in the Modern World, Vatican II labels its introductory section on marriage. Quote, the sanctity of marriage and the family, unquote. Of course, this can be said of all human relationships. In every relationship, each person should help the other get to heaven. But within marriage and the family, there are unique relationships that arise from the marriage covenant and from birth. Thus, the purpose of helping each other to possess the salvation won by Jesus Christ takes on an overriding importance for husband and wife in their relationships with each other and with their children. Within the context of growth in holiness, the Second Vatican Council taught about two other purposes of marriage. One, the development of their married love, and two, the procreation and education of children. One, interestingly, in its section titled Conjugal Love, the Vatican II document states only indirectly that the development of marital love is one of the purposes of marriage. Perhaps this is due to the ease with which such a statement can be misunderstood in an age in which the word, quote, love has no single meaning. Thus, number Paragraph number 49 of Gaudium et Spes teaches this purpose of marriage only indirectly. Quote, The biblical word of God several times urges the betrothed and the married to nourish and develop their wedlock by pure conjugal love and undivided affection. This love is an eminently human one, since it is directed from one person to another through an affection of the will. Such love, merging the human with the divine, leads the spouses to a free and mutual gift of themselves. Such love pervades the whole of their lives. Indeed, by its generous activity, it grows better and grows greater. Therefore, it far excels mere erotic inclination, which, selfishly pursued, soon enough fades wretchedly away. This love is uniquely expressed and perfected through the marital act. 
the actions within marriage by which the couple are united intimately and chastely are noble and worthy ones. Expressed in a manner which is truly human, these actions signify and promote that mutual self-giving by which spouses enrich each other with a joyful and thankful will." Unquote. By contrast, paragraph 50, titled The Fruitfulness of Marriage, directly teaches the procreative purpose of marriage. Married, quote, Marriage and conjugal love are by their nature ordained toward the beginning and educating of children. Children are really the supreme gift of marriage and contribute very substantially to the welfare of their parents. Hence, while not making the other purposes of matrimony of less account, the true practice of conjugal love and the whole meaning of the family life which results from it have this aim, that the couple be ready with stout hearts to cooperate with the love of the Creator and the Savior, who through them will enlarge and enrich his own family day by day. Parents should regard as their proper mission the task of transmitting human life and educating those to whom it has been transmitted. End quote. Yeah, that is one of the primary missions of marriage is to bring new human beings into the world and to educate them in the ways of the Lord so that they can know Him, love Him, serve Him, and live with Him forever. Back to page 56. Then, after reviewing various factors that enter into the size of family decision and praising in a special way those parents who, quote, with a gallant heart undertake to bring up suitably even a relatively large family, unquote. Paragraph 50 concludes with a paragraph that comes to the closest of the entire document to teaching directly the, quote, mutual love purpose of marriage. And even then, it is in the context of affirming indissolubility in the face of infertility. Quote, Marriage, to be sure, is not instituted solely for procreation. Rather, its very nature as an unbreakable compact between two persons and the welfare of the children both demand that the mutual love of the spouses, too, be embodied in a rightly ordered manner, that it grow and ripen. Therefore, marriage persists as a whole manner and communion of life and maintains its value and indissolubility, even when offspring are lacking, despite, rather often, the very intense desire of the couple. End quote. So, the church very rightly says marriage is not instituted just for procreation. It is, you don't get married only for having children. 
If that were the case, once uh, a woman is past menopause, she couldn't enter into the sacrament of matrimony, which is certainly not the case at all. Uh, some very old people can and do get married, even when, naturally speaking, they can no longer have children. Procreation and openness to procreation is essential. The openness to it. But sometimes people are naturally sterile. They desperately want to have children, but they can't. That does nothing to dissolve the marriage covenant. You know, and the church is very wise in stating that. Number two, what is the role of sex within marriage? The role of sex within marriage is to foster the purposes of marriage itself. The development of the marriage bond and the procreation and education of children. It is to be a symbol of the mutual commitment of the spouses, a renewal of their marriage covenant, at least implicitly. So, sex is to build up the love between the spouses, and it is to provide a way to bring new human beings into the world. Basically, that's what it just said. And that's what you commit yourself to on, uh, on your wedding day, in your wedding vows. When you enter into the covenant that God has designed, in that covenant that God has designed, it is a total gift of self. And that is to grow in love for each other, and that love spills over into the procreation of children. The top of page 57. Because they have now entered into a marriage relationship, a mutual personal commitment of lifelong love without reservation, the married couple is now free to express that union sacramentally in the sexual union. The sexual union now becomes a physical way of expressing their marriage covenant. Their sexual union now says, we are together, we are committed to each other, we are to love each other, and we hope to do, and we hope we do love each other without reservation for better and for worse, whatever that may entail. The two-in-one fleshness of our physical intimacy is a symbol of the two-become-oneness of the permanent commitment we have made in marriage. Amen. The sexual union under these circumstances is morally good because it is the renewal of the marriage covenant. It has become something more than physical. It has become sacramental, an outward expression of the interpersonal and God-made covenant of marriage. Absolutely. That's exactly what you're doing. That's when it makes sense. When you have totally committed yourself to each other in every way, 
in a mutual life together, then it makes sense to have sex together. Then it makes sense to go all the way sexually. Otherwise, it's simply a lie. Sexual intercourse before marriage is a lie. It's saying with your body, I give myself to you completely, but you actually haven't done that. You actually haven't committed yourself unreservedly uh, to a life together until death do you part. Three, how is contraceptive behavior to be evaluated in terms of the marriage covenant? In making the commitment of marriage, the couple give themselves to each other for better or for worse without reservation. Sexual intercourse becomes the symbol of that initial unreserved gift of self to the other, a gift that must be carried out in the day-to-day -day living of their marriage. However, the essence of contraceptive behavior is that it is sex with serious reservations. The symbol of total self-giving is contradicted by contraceptive behaviors and de facto there is lacking the unreserved gift of self. So, what you're saying, what the author is saying, that in contraceptive intercourse, you are not giving yourself unreservedly to the other person. You are not giving your fertility. You're not giving your openness to new human life. You have closed off your fertility. And so it is not a gift of yourself. It is not a total. It's, it's, it's a partial gift to yourself. And that is not the marriage covenant. The marriage covenant is a complete and total gift of myself. My fertility is a huge part of me. And in contraceptive sex, you're saying, I am not going to give you my fertility, which is a very, very big part of it. So that is not in accordance with the marriage covenant. Because it contradicts the marriage covenant, marital contraception must be evaluated as objectively e evil. Now, I'm sure there are people out there having contraceptive sex, and maybe they don't even know that it's wrong. So they're doing something that is evil, but they may not be responsible for it. They may not be culpable for it. God may not hold them accountable for what they're doing because they don't know any better. But that's one of the reasons I have a class like this, is to teach people so that they can understand and accept these teachings in the formation of their conscience and then they will be accountable for their actions. 
That's why he says objectively evil. Subjectively, who knows? But objectively, contraceptive intercourse is an evil action. An analysis from the perspective of intentions yields the same conclusion. Any analysis of the reasons put forth for the practice of contraception find them summarized as fear of consequences of ill health, fear of economic disadvantages, or fear of a number of things that can be called worse rather than better. Contraception is both a sign of refusal to run the risk of such consequences of the marital act and the means of positively separating the unitive and procreative aspects of that marital act. By their use of contraception, a married couple do not renew the marriage covenant in their marital relations. They positively exclude in such relations all of the trust elements of the marriage covenant, those elements that require that they put their faith and their life together in the hands of God. Such anti-covenant sex is invalid as a renewal of their marriage covenant. Anyone who knows anything about the Catholic theology of marriage would call invalid and therefore immoral a marriage in which the man and woman said, we take each other for better and for richer and for health, but not in sickness or poverty or for worse. The same evaluation has to be made about marital relations marred by contraceptive behavior because sex is supposed to be a symbol of the honest and full marriage commitment, a renewal, at least implicitly, of a true marriage covenant. A third way of stating the argument is from the perspective of honesty. Adultery and fornication are intrinsically dishonest. In these sins, the couple take an act intended to be a symbol of married love and distort it. Whatever they want to call it, they know it is not a sign of permanent committed love. Contraceptive behavior makes marital relations intrinsically dishonest. That's the phrase Pope Paul VI used in Humanae Vitae, to describe the evil of marital contraception. The couple may pretend their act is a symbol of self-giving love, but in their inner hearts, if they think about it, they know that the essence of their behavior is a denial of the unreserved gift of self that made them married. Such intrinsically dishonest behavior is objectively immoral. Well, I happen to be tired, and I'm going to quit for the night. But um, we've, we've entered into the topic here, and it's a brave world that we've entered into. And for anyone who's watching or listening on the podcast, I, I want to say that this is a very challenging teaching. In our day and in our time in this culture, where contraceptive mentality has completely taken over, 
In the secular world, it's totally taken over. And even in the Christian and the Catholic world, it has almost completely taken over. So we're living in a culture where this is a very challenging message. And it may be a new message. I have come across so many people, married people, Catholics, who really have never heard the message that contraception is evil. I, to me, it's shocking how you could be so uninformed, but this is the world in which we live. And so this is one of the reasons I want to do these classes uh, is to help bring this topic out into the light, explain it clearly, give a very reasoned argumentation for the church's teaching. And this book, Sex of the Marriage Covenant by John Kipling, is so thorough. It is so fantastic. I really encourage everyone to get the book and to read it for themselves. Listening to me talk about it, listening to me reading it, is better than nothing. But I encourage people to read it for themselves, to study it, because it is an excellent explanation. And it does take some time. It takes some effort. But if you're serious about following Jesus, if you're serious about being a Catholic, you really have to dive into this topic so that you can understand it and live it out. And when you do, you will find the greatest joy, the greatest happiness, because this is the truth. Our world, our culture is obsessed with sex, but they're missing it. They are missing the true and the greatest enjoyment, fulfillment, satisfaction that sexuality brings when they are having contraceptive sex. When you do the sexual act in the context of true marriage, with complete gift of yourself to the other person, you will have the greatest fulfillment from this wonderful gift from God. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord, thank you so much for these classes. I pray, Lord, that you send your Holy Spirit upon every person who watches and listens to these lessons, that the Holy Spirit will open up their minds and hearts to accept the truth of your beautiful plan for marriage and sexuality. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. amen.